Our passage today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now most of us know this story of Paul. At the end of chapter 7 in Acts, we read that Saul was the young man holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first follower of Christ to be killed for his faith. And chapter 8 then begins that day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Paul was ravaging the church by entering house after house. Dragging off both men and women, he committed them to prison. But this is what we tend to miss in the story. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. He wasn't trying to be some bad guy. He thought he was defending the God of Israel from idolaters. He thought he was putting to death a path of belief that denied the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or even worse, 
a path of belief that distorted and twisted this God into a weak, impotent God who died at the hands of the Romans. He saw the way as blasphemy, and he saw himself as God's protector, a defender of the truth, of faith, of true life, of the heavenly kingdom. Boy, it does not take much imagination to see parallels in our world today, parallels with us in our recent history, parallels with our churches and our culture, parallels that make us squirm under their scrutiny and accusation. With that in mind, let's look again at this passage. Paul starts by asking the high priest for a letter of authority so that he can go to Damascus under the auspices of the Jewish temple leadership. He wants to pluck the weeds from the wheat beyond Jerusalem, arresting anyone who defies his authority and the authority of the temple, anyone who suggests that this Jesus was anything other than a criminal, a thug, a danger to society and to the faith. And then along the way, he is struck blind by a bright light. Now, remember, in John's Gospel account, the man born blind was assumed to have sinned, or his parents sinned, in order that he was born blind. Because that was the belief that any malady was caused by sin. So imagine what Paul must have been feeling and thinking at this point. What have I done to deserve this? What sin have I committed that I would be struck blind? Have I not fought for God hard enough? And then comes the voice of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? Persecuted? No, no, he wasn't persecuting, was he? He was on the side of the righteous and the faithful. He's the one protecting the country from Muslim terrorists in Congress. He's the one converting Native Americans to the faith, the slave owner saving his slaves from their demon beliefs, the bakery refusing to serve gays, the law-abiding vigilante taking down the thugs of this world. We should back him up, thank him, for his diligence and sacrifice on behalf of all the good people of God. But that's not the way Jesus saw it. It's not the way Jesus sees it. Not only was Paul persecuting the people, he was persecuting Jesus himself. Saul, Jesus says, why have you persecuted me? And his blindness was proof proof of how little he could see of God's way of justice, peace, and faithfulness. His blindness was opportunity to step back and reassess. His blindness wasn't punishment, but possibility. To finally stop judging by what he thought he saw and pay attention to the reality around him. But Paul's not the only one affected that day. Ananias received a vision from Jesus as well. A voice told him to go to this great persecutor and heal him. And Ananias' first thought was, oh, hell no. <laughs> Don't you know who that is, God? Don't you know what he's done? 
Can you imagine what he'll do to me? I am not going to put myself in a position of further vulnerability. You have asked too much. Because you see, Ananias was a follower of the way, a leader of the early Christian church. He would be playing right into Paul's hands, delivering himself to the very demon who would kill him and his family and his friends. And that should not be expected of those who are marginalized. Why is it always the most vulnerable who are expected to take the first step, to make the first move, to forgive before any remorse or admittance of wrongdoing is even offered? This is too much to ask God. Why should black people endorse a cop who kneels beside them? Does anyone trust that it's sincere? Why should gay people give the church another chance? Haven't they been hurt enough by hateful theology proclaimed from those in authority, the very ones who can speak of God's love out of one side of their mouth and God's hate from the other? I listened to a couple of TED Talks this week in preparation for this sermon. One was offered by a former Westboro Baptist member who grew up believing the rhetoric of their picket signs long before she could even read what they said. She said the shifting force in her life, of all things, was Twitter. Even as she posted vitriolic statements of hate about Jews and gays and people of color, those she thought she hated would then engage her in conversation. And they shared their stories, and they asked her questions. And they became human beings to her, not just some hypothetical group of people. They were individuals who showed their love and concern for her, even as she spewed hate. It was this love that changed her life, that made her rethink what she had been told by her church. It was her victims coming close, being kind without her deserving it and slowly changing her perception of them. They became vulnerable so that she could become vulnerable. Now another TED Talk was offered by a man who from the age of 14 was a hardcore neo-Nazi white supremacist. And by the age of 19, he was one of the primary leaders of the neo-Nazi movement. He wrote and sold white power music some of which years later inspired a young white Lutheran man to go into a Charleston, South Carolina church and murder nine innocent African-American people during a Bible study. And it wasn't until a black person came into his music store. And he sold a bit of other music just to keep his store legitimate, but this black young man came in, and that's when things began to change for him. Because this youth was clearly upset and shared that his mother was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And the man could relate because his mother had also just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And then a gay couple came in with their son. And there was no denying how much they loved their son. Just as this man loved his own newborn son. And so he began to step away from the neo-Nazi group. And his store closed 
because he stopped selling the white power music because it embarrassed him in front of these new friends of his. And his wife and son left him because the change in him wasn't happening fast enough. But he still couldn't quite move forward. He didn't know who he was or what his purpose was, and he was as lost as he had been when, his, when he first encountered the man who recruited him as a teenager. So he ended up, strangely enough, getting a job at IBM, and he was sent to one of his old schools to install computers. Now, this was a school he had been kicked out of twice, and the second time was because he had gotten into a fight with the black janitor, a man who still worked there. And so this man decided to confront the janitor, who, when he saw him and recognized him, took a step back out of fear. But then he embraced the man when all he could say was, I'm sorry. Friends, our lives are conversion stories in the works. For all of us who insist on our rightness, who are scared of the other, who have been hurt by words and worse, who are vulnerable, who are angry, who are frustrated, who live with hatred, whether that's our own or that of others, who don't understand how someone could think that way. We are all conversion stories. We are all in need of great healing. We are all in need of forgiveness, and we are all in a place to forgive. As a white person and a position of power, I have no right to ask that those who have been first or those who have been hurt be the first to ask. Let me start over. I have no right to ask that those who have been hurt be the first to act or to forgive or to offer wholeness, the first to build a bridge. And as a woman, I bristle at the idea of putting myself in a position of vulnerability that might add trauma to the weight of historical persecution of women. But all I know is this. Had Ananias not gone to Saul, had he not placed his hands over Saul's eyes, had he not taken the risk of feeding him so that he regained his strength, the story of Jesus would have died in fear. So no, it is not fair to ask those who have been victimized to forgive. And maybe it's not even possible. And it doesn't mean that those of us who have lived on the side of power have nothing to account for. Jesus also promises Ananias that Paul, too, will suffer in the name of Christ. But that's not Ananias' concern. Vengeance and punishment are taken off the table as soon as Jesus enters the story. And now it becomes a story of healing and hope, a story of forgiveness and redemption. With the black when the black janitor embraced this former neo-Nazi, he said, you tell your story to anyone who will listen. That is how hearts are changed. That is how hope is born. It is not brought about by arguments and proof and demands and rebuttals. It is born of the very hard work of conversation. 
of listening to other perspectives, of patience, of forgiveness, and of helping each other see again the life God offers through the risen Christ. And I am not delusional enough to say that I have it figured out or that I am any good at it or that I deserve the forgiveness of those that I have hurt along the way. And I certainly don't deserve God's forgiveness. But that's the good news of grace and love. The good news is that my story and your story are conversion stories. As are those of the people you have yet to meet, to forgive, to receive forgiveness from. Friends, we are being changed. And the story isn't over. We are just beginning. Our chains are gone. We have been set free. Now, how shall we live? Amen. <laughs>